This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a really special show to you today. We're not actually broadcasting from the Wharton School. We're on the road in a remote location here in New York at the Marriott Marquis. There's the annual Jacobs Levy Conference for Quantitative Finance. It's the fifth year we've been broadcasting here from the, the conference. We're going to have three great discussions today with, with three of the speakers and, and one of the award winners from the conference this year. Um, but Professor, before we turn it over to our, our guests here in New York, give, give us your updates, your views. What is, what's going on? Uh, well, Jeremy, lots going on. You know, uh, I remember last Friday when we were interviewing uh, President James Board, uh, there was this news that uh, the, the Chinese uh, had changed their plans and canceled some meetings. The market fell 200 points. Well, believe it or not, this Friday, 11.30, when the administration uh, announced that they may put some capital restrictions on flows between China and the U.S., bang, the Dow fell 200 points. Uh, we're just uh, being buffeted uh, by these trade uh, waves back and forth, and it, it emphasizes the fact that trade is by far the dominating factor. Uh, now on the markets, much more really than uh, I know there's you know the impeachment inquiry and that has gotten an awful lot of uh, press, but uh, that is not really moving the markets all that much. Not as much as trade. Trade is still um, dominant. Uh, in fact, what what's interesting in the markets is the uh, the fallout from this might actually be more negative for uh, Joseph Biden. Um, than it is for Donald Trump. Uh, and in fact, in the betting markets, uh, Warren has now uh, soared to 50% probability of taking the Democratic nomination. She's never been so high. Biden is in second with only 20. Uh, and then Bernie Sanders and others, 10 apiece. So she has just opened up a huge lead. Um, and of course, she's got a very extreme agenda uh, that some Wall Streeters have said that even Democrats have said they could not support. So, you know, this is uh, this is certainly interesting. Now, of course, we have more than a year to the election and nine months until the uh, convention. So lots can happen. But um, uh, that that's also making waves. Um, on the actual couple of things, I think, right on the financial front, um, it seems like the Fed has calmed down uh, the 
uh, the illiquidity in the repo market. And in fact, today, uh, the Fed funds rate fell down back to 185, which is now only five basis points above its uh, interest on excess reserves. Um, and uh, there has been reports that the repo market is returning uh, to normal. Also, by the way, but today, this morning, uh, uh, data that we got on personal consumption, spending, um, and others have um, forced down some GDP estimates, actually from slightly over two in the third quarter. Uh, now the ones that I file closely are actually saying 1.7. Now it fell considerably above two, so others say it's only one and a half, although there's a lot of data coming in. Uh, as you know, we got the third revision of of the second quarter, and that remained at 2%. So 2% second looks at this point under 2%. This is the slower growth we talked about. Of course, next Friday, you know, we're going to have the uh, employment report and, uh, you know, see whether there's uh, any, you know, important impact on uh, the non-farm payrolls. So trade is the number one story. We've got this impeachment stuff. As Do you think the... When when thinking about the the war in Kansas City, how does that start getting priced into the market? I mean, that she seems to I mean, that the uh, that there was yeah. definitely very big change well, in policies. Definite, from I mean, it's a definite negative. Uh, I mean, the market would much prefer a Biden or a middle of the rotor. Uh, the problem is now that with Warren, it's, we're opening up a lead. On, there is no middle of the rotor if, if Biden continues to fall. That. Uh, is, uh, you know, can can rise up. I mean, there's some talk of, you know, would Bloomberg at this late pace say, hey, you know, I, I'm going to enter into this uh, market or not. There's some speculation there. Um, you know, he said, I am staying out, but I don't think he expected Biden to fold so earlier. And by the way, the word fold is too strong, but certainly um, uh, there there's a lot of problems with his candidacy, and it is not polling um, uh, nearly as, as well. Again, uh, emphasize um, the the odds makers uh, still give the Senate two to one to the Republicans in the next election. If the Senate stays Republicans, then even if Warren is elected uh, president, there's very little she could do. Uh, to reverse the tax uh, plan, <coughs> excuse me, tax plans that the Republicans put in effect two years ago, or uh, many of the other uh, uh, items that had been done. Of course, if there is a huge Democratic uh, push and they do sweep on the Senate, that would be, I think, quite negative uh, for equity, certainly in the short run. You have any sense? Do you think this impeachment stuff goes through? Is uh, as you as you read the situation? Well, as it is, right uh, now the odds makers are are saying that uh, you know since the House is controlled by a fairly uh, good margin by the Democrats, uh, they they put impeachment fifty um, fifty. But uh, um, at this point, the the odds makers say that there's six to one against Senate uh, conviction. I would say, by the way, if no other smoking guns appear, it's ten to one. I don't think, I don't think, you know what, my what uh, Trump did will, you know, persuade any number of the Republican senators to move. If there is more transcripts and more explicit uh, information that says elsewise, then of course that can change uh, the situation. But at, 
At this point, the odds makers are saying five to six to one against conviction in the Senate, and I I believe that the equity markets are pretty much following uh, that prediction. Well, professor, thanks for some comments to start the show. I'm going to turn it over to our, our, uh, our first professor here on uh, at the at the conference. Okay, thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank, thank you. Uh, so we're going to rec- welcome our first guest. He was actually the first presenter here at the uh, at the conference, Matthew Ringenberg, who is associate professor of finance at the University of Utah who presented on a paper called Anomaly Time. Uh, Matthew, welcome to Behind the Markets. Welcome to our program. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you, what you studied, how you got to the University of Utah, sort of your, your main interest that got you focused on your paper this morning on anomalies. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. I've always been extremely interested in asset pricing. And so I think uh, broadly, I love finance research. And I also love the outdoors, mountain biking, hiking, skiing. So Utah's a good place for that. Moving to Utah is a perfect combination. I can do finance research in the mountains. Um, But broadly speaking, I've always been kind of interested in this area. And so my co-authors and I have kind of wondered for a long time if we could um, understand more about the nature of stock prices and anomalies. And so your, your paper today, as you think about all the different influences on anomalies in the studies, what, what got you to studying it in, in the exact fashion that you guys presented? Well, I think what's happened is over the years, over the decades, there have been literally hundreds of different papers that have documented evidence of asset pricing anomalies. But more recently, if you look at the data, it looks like many of these things are gone. And so this really begged this question for us. Are these things real or were they just kind of spurious correlations in the data to begin with? So I think we're always concerned about this idea maybe of data mining where things are not really there. Yeah. Uh, and so my co-authors and I really wanted to try to get to the bottom of that and figure out are these anomalies real or are they spurious? And, uh, and the conclusion? The conclusion for the most part is uh, a lot of them appear to be real. So once you actually really carefully look at the data, you can actually see evidence that these things are still there. Now, one of the things that was interesting was you're talking about how the academics look at rebalancing anomalies and versus how you were looking at it. Maybe just describe really what is the difference between academics and then people who try to implement this kind of academic work into a real portfolios. So I think one of the issues has always been, especially going back, you know, the anomaly literature has been around for decades, is we've always been worried about data availability. And so one thing is you always want to make sure that if you're going to look at a trading strategy, you only use data that was available at the time the strategy would have been started. Now, because academics didn't always have the best data, they often kind of used a gray area where they basically just said, let's be really conservative and we'll just rebalance every year in June. But it turns out that oftentimes the information was available way before that, oftentimes several months before that. And so what our paper did is we used this point-in-time data that allows us to really precisely measure when information first becomes available. And what we see then is all of these anomalies that look like they disappeared are still there. You just need to trade right after the information first comes out. And when in your studies, you, you sort of talked about some of this other research on um, from Pontiff and McLean. There's like 93 anomalies. Right. They, they did a series of research, and you looked at nine of the anomalies. Want to talk through the nine anomalies that you focused on in terms of why you focused on the nine of the, the subset of the 93 that, that was a, the purpose of your paper? Yeah, so the paper by Jeff uh, Pontiff and David McLean is really interesting. So they look at 93 anomalies, and at the time they wrote this, this was basically all the anomalies they could find really in the literature. Uh, And what they found, which was kind of a motivation for our paper, is you see these anomalies, but then it seems like in more recent periods they're not there anymore. They don't exist. 
So our idea for the paper was, again, anomalies, if they're real, are likely related to the release of particular pieces of information. And so we wanted to test that. And to test that, we needed to be able to find anomalies where we could say, here is the exact moment when that information first came out. So there are certain anomalies where that's hard to do. If you think about something like momentum, you buy winners and sell losers. Well, there's never really a, an instant where that information becomes available. It's continuously updating. But there are other anomalies. For example, there's an anomaly called asset growth, which is basically you pull the assets number out of a company's balance sheet and use that to form your portfolios. That has a very clear date on which the information is released. So we picked nine anomalies that had really clear, precise information release dates. Lee Chen, I've been dominating. Do you want to get involved in the conversation? We got Lee Chen here, director sure. of Modern Alpha. Yeah. With <laughs> hey, thank you. Great paper. I, I think uh, well, another question is that uh, most of the anomalies that you have looked at is seem to be related to the quality factor that's uh, you know uh, prevalent in the academic uh, industry. There's two anomalies. One um, uh, is a revision, uh, analyst revision that has a clear timeline, and the other is uh, uh, post earnings announcement. So you mentioned that, you know, that's a two anomaly you likely can do, but probably just talk a little bit like in the beginning why you, you know, didn't uh, look at these two. Well, yeah, so we, we kind of went through the list of 93 anomalies that were in this paper by Pontiff and McLean and picked out the ones that we thought were really obvious candidates to be examined. And we just looked at them once and put them in the paper. Uh, so there was nothing kind of, um, you know, we, we didn't selectively pick them. Um, but other people have kind of pointed out there's some other events that, you know, have clear information release dates. And so I think what we're working on now is we're going to expand the set of anomalies and look at these. So example, as you said, you know, analyst revisions, there's a very clear moment at which these analyst revisions first become public. And so I suspect we'll find similar things when we examine that. But that'll be that'll be in the next version of the mm -hmm. paper. Hopefully we'll have many more that we can yeah. look at. The follow-up is that um, nowadays... Um, it, these are all very U.S. data, but in, in some way, you know, accounting standards are g getting more uniform uh, internationally. Uh, do you guys have any plan to look at, you know, international and emerging market? Oh, I would love to do that. So I think, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of got a sequence of things we want to look at. The first step is to add some more anomalies, and I, I think we also want to look a little bit more on kind of how implementable are these strategies in the real world. Mm -hmm. So our, our evidence shows that if you trade on these things really quickly, you do generate significant abnormal returns, but we need to think about things like transaction costs and, and you know, rebalancing frictions. But once we've done all of this, I think a natural extension is to look and see whether or not these things exist in other markets. Uh, a lot of people have looked at you know, certain things like asset pricing factors and found that they do exist in other countries. Uh, so I think that's a natural step for us. So hopefully that's something we can do next. One of the things I wanted to draw out from you, you said at the very end of your presentation, if I really could have spent more time on this, and it, was, it had to do with the timing of how quick these factors worked, um, if you did the proper alignment with your point in time, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the efficacy of the factors and, and, and sort of time frames and windows? Sure. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's maybe not surprising, but I also thought it was very interesting. What we see in the data is um, we look at kind of a 20 or 30 year sample of, of asset pricing anomalies. But if you look in the most recent five or 10 year period, you see all the effects we found, except they've happened faster. Right? So it used to be, over our entire sample period, um, our results show that something like um, anomalies tend to get arbitraged away in about 100 days. Right? So if you start your position after 100 days, there's nothing left for you to earn. Um, but in the most recent period, we actually find that a significant portion of these returns happen in the first five days. Right? So uh, it looks like arbitrageurs are becoming much, much faster at arbitraging these so these are away. hedge funds. They're coming in, active managers, picking the stocks, and being able to take 
all the profits from these systematic quantitative strategies that the academics talk about. Exactly. If you don't get it in the first five days, you're too late. Right. And, and so then, you know, if you kind of combine the pieces of the puzzle, what you see then is academics are often looking at these things where they use stale data. And so it looks like these things are gone. But if you actually look at the exact data that practitioners are using, mm -hmm. and you could get into this thing right away, there's still something there. You just yeah. have to be very, very fast. Now, let's talk about just which factors of your nine factors worked well and which didn't. And so there was a few, like you mentioned, asset growth. That, that was one of your top two factors. Sustainable growth was another one of your factors that worked really well. And then uh, as, as the discussion on the paper came up afterwards, sort of these accruals data, the, the the networking capital didn't look so hot. You know, maybe some of the that others was not good. Any any commentary when you think about what's behind the asset growth, the sustainable growth? Anything in common or any any commentary there? Well, I mean, I think there's there's differences in the types of information that investors pay attention to. And so this is another thing we're trying to explore as kind of a next step is to try to figure out uh, what we know is that certain data tends to be released in earnings announcements. Certain data tends to be released in 10Ks. Uh, and it's, it's possible that analysts or in, uh, professional investors are focusing more on, say, a 10K than on the press release associated with earnings announcements. And so certain types of anomalies may actually be you know, more overlooked than others. Um, now, I, we haven't really fully explored that yet. But that's something we're going to look into as, as well in the future. Mm -hmm. So in terms of investment, uh, suppose, you know, ordinary investor, um, you know, have be just based on all your years of research and, and you know, uh, your knowledge of all the papers related to anonymy, like from a personal investor point of view, nowadays there's, you know, cap-weighted index. Uh, the second portion, which is very uh, up and coming, is factors or multi-factor strategies, which is still rule-based. You know, try to get the individual uh, bias out of the personal investment decision. And then the third is, you know, more hedge fund um, word. Like for you as a personal investor, like how do you allocate your money uh, Taking uh, across your research the and putting your money where yeah. your mouth is. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll say what I always tell my students. I don't give investment advice. But, mm -hmm. um, but, but, but in all seriousness, I, I would say kind of my strategies are a mix of uh, almost the, the quantum mental you know, uh, type stuff. So, so I've done some work consulting with hedge funds. I do a little bit of work with a new fund called Green Summit. Um, and I think that I generally think about a couple of things. One, I think about trying to make sure that things are real and not spurious. So I think a ton about that. You want to make sure that you know, you're not accidentally trading on a correlation that was in the data but isn't a real economic force. Um, but in terms of kind of what I do, it's a, it's a mix of you know, passive index investing. And then I think I tend to tilt towards things that I think there are signals that suggest there's mispricing. And so kind of consistent with, with what I talked about mm -hmm. today. And so which are those factors you believe in? Well, I mean, I think that uh, is mispriced. <laughs> I, I'm not going to give away exactly what's in my personal portfolio, but I do think that uh, again, and those funds, but factors, high-level descriptors. I mean, I think there are certain things that the academic literature has shown over and over and over again contain information about future returns, and I've done a ton of research on things like short selling. And uh, if you look at the short selling today, uh, data, I mean, I think one of the almost one of the large puzzles in academia is short selling data is publicly released. High short selling predicts low future returns. That is persistent across stocks and across time. We all know this, and that one doesn't even seem to be going away, right? Uh, so we know there are some of these things where the data seems to suggest that there is information in the behavior of skilled agents, mm -hmm. and it seems like it can actually help you when you're trading. Yes, and um, also uh, follow-up is that um, when you, when, when for our listeners, when you say, 
quantumental is more like you know kind of certain factor but in a systematic way right yeah i think that mm -hmm. that's exactly right so i think you know I, I we try to think about things that are kind of um you know intelligently set up to account for what we know about fundamental value um, but also that are really broadly diversified and don't have incredibly high turnover. Mm -hmm. We're going to wrap it up here with you. I know you've got a flight, a long I flight do. to Australia. We've got a next guest waiting by. Um, any final closing thoughts? Anything you, you want to point people to, how to follow your work and things you're interested in? Well, all of my papers are available online at, at, at SSRN. And of course, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and guys. And what's your research now? What's the... A lot of my research now is actually looking at what are the effects of index investing. So as we see more and more people pouring into index funds, I think there's a natural question about how this affects the economy and how this affects firm behavior. And so that's, that's the thing I've been studying next. That's uh, going to be good. We will get you back on the yeah. show to talk about that as I, it develops. I would be happy to. We'd uh, love to see whether Anomaly is more prominent or less prominent after, after the indexing um, you know, become more prevalent. Oh, great. Well, I'd be, I'd be happy to talk with you guys again. Thanks Thank again you, for Matthew. having me. Thanks Thank for coming. You. Um, we're going to welcome into our next guest, who is Mihail Velikov, and I don't know if I got the pronunciation on that, uh, Mihail, here. Uh, and he's an assistant professor of finance at the Smeal College of Business at Penn State University. Before working at, before going to Penn State, he was spent four years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Uh, very interesting. And your, your co-author, who presented today, also was f from the Federal Reserve. Uh, the interesting from from the Federal Reserve, and you also previously coming from the Federal Reserve, you guys did a paper also on anomalies, but focused on trading costs. How did two Fed researchers start focusing on anomalies and trading costs? Um, uh, just, first of all, thank you so uh, thank you guys so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, um, thank you for joining us. So the interest in anomalies and trading costs for me actually came from some of the work I did in grad school. And I think the fact that people everywhere, including the Fed, do research um, on anomalies hopefully indicates that it's a very interesting, very hot topic. And being at the conference here today, I think that's a testament to that. And you did some work with Robert Navi Marx as well on trading costs and and. Papers. Robert Navi Marx is a professor who's done a lot of work on the quality factor, the return on assets, gross operating profits to assets. What, what did that research show, and, and what was that study like? So, uh, yeah, Robert Navi Marx was my dissertation advisor, actually, at the University of Rochester. So I've, I've had the pleasure of working with him on, um, on multiple papers now. Um, and his, I mean, I think he's, he's, he's probably popular among academics especially uh, with, with several strands of research but especially among industry yeah. his work on gross profitability is, yeah. uh, is, is very relevant I think he was the first to show that a very simple measure of profits gross, prof gross profitability um, actually has um, a, a very strong power in predicting returns and moreover it serves as a very good hedge to value strategies yes. um, so that I think what made his, his, his um, kind of his work very popular and a lot of kind of institutional managers kind of picked up on it and started creating quality, as you mentioned, and yeah. profitability that fund. Yeah, we were focused on it around a similar time. Mm -hmm. uh, we Tree worked on some indexes back in 2013. I think it was a similar time as some of the, I don't know exactly when his first paper was published, but there was a lot of strands around that on you know the difference between price to book and then price to earnings being yep. the return on equity and then you have all these other ways of getting 
at what is the right quality variable. Um, yep. well, well, what was your specific line with him? What was what, what? so we started a Bayburn transaction cost with him actually. Yeah. We used a very very simple measure that um, researchers in the what we call microstructure literature in academic finance came up with that okay. was able to actually achieve very high correlation with with some of the more high frequency data that's only available in the starting in the nineties. Um, but the benefit of that measure was that we could actually extend it. It only uses daily price data, so we could actually use it in backtesting strategy going back to the 20s. Um, and what we did was we applied this measure to a, a, what at the time see, seemed a large cross-section of about 23 anomalies um, and looked at how different, res, uh, di different anomalies respond to accounting for a simple measure of transaction costs. Now, the, the big conclusion that you guys presented today was that if there's all these factors, and, and there was maybe 120 factors mm -hmm. that you guys studied, mm -hmm. 120 factors, and you know maybe before transaction costs, the estimate was gross returns of 30 basis points a month? Mm -hmm. and then Post-publication. Post-publication, and pre-publication, it was? About 60. So, th so there's first this research saying out of after these 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 papers are published, the returns go down. So they go down in half, from 60 to 30 basis points a month. Mm -hmm. And then, after that, after the transaction cost your estimates, they go down to negative or zero. Yep. Yeah, that's um, so, <laughs> that's the conclusion. So, 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 so this is the, the essentially the basic conclusion um, of my paper with Andrew Chen, who had the the pleasure to present the paper here at the conference. Um, but there are several caveats associated yeah. with that, right? So, so, so our results look at the average anomaly for an average investor. So the transaction cost measure that we actually apply to each anomaly is a the most simple measure you can think of. It's an effective bid ask spread. So how much would you pay if you submit a market order? Is the way to think about it. Um, of course, as we note in the paper and try to clarify in the presentation, there are sophisticated arbitrageurs that could improve upon this measure um, and improve upon the scale of transaction costs and actually profit from these anomalies. But our, the way we looked at it is if, if you see an academic paper published, what would an average investor make of it? Yeah. Well, actually, I want to make a point. That, uh, uh, do you want to you know, point out that in your post-publication transaction cost adjusted returns, they're still close to four to twelve basis points uh, a month, which translates to, you know, point four eight percent to about one point five six percent a year. And thinking, you know, nowadays a lot of uh, factor strategies, uh, you know, ETFs in particular, um, uh, strategies uh, implemented in the form of ETF. It if you could outperform the market by one hundred fifty <laughs> basis points a year, you'll be a top decile fund. Yeah. So I do want to say <laughs> so that, that it's so actually good. not low. Yeah. <laughs> Even at forty basis points, it's actually you know uh, profitable. Um, so. And in the paper we do, and in the presentation today, we showed that we do go, try to go beyond that, right? We do some simple, because uh, our initial results and the headline results of our paper are for the, for the average academic strategy. Uh, and of course, academics, you know, usually they're more interested in the economics behind a pattern in the cross-section of stock returns than actually how to make money off, off yeah. of it. Having several papers on transaction costs, I've heard multiple times, but even if it doesn't survive transaction costs, I'm still very interested in understanding why this pattern emerges. Um, so we, you know, we tend to think differently in academia. Although yeah. a lot of the academics, they now have consulting agreements with the big asset managers <laughs> yeah. from the Fama French crew to, Fair point. you know, so people, they, they do yeah. moonlight moon in, the, in the real world. Um, so 
you know, the um, one of the comments that people made today was if you, you know, there's a whole spread of of how expensive it is to trade. And there were some comments, and maybe you should bucket a high cost of trade and where it might cost a stock 50 to 100 basis points versus the, the lower, you know, when there's not that much cost of trade and see how that compares. Any, any thoughts on those kind of studies to see yeah, if it's we, just the outliers at the extreme? Yep, yep. So, 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 so we are, we're very sympathetic to these arguments, and, and we are, we're perfectly aware that a lot of institutional managers, you know, they would only trade a fraction of, of, of stocks in the universe, right? They wouldn't trade the whole universe. Um, but our initial claim, I mean, our initial goal with the paper was to see whether an academic strategy survived trading costs. That's why we insisted on having all stocks initially. Yeah. Then in the cost optimization, we considered um, adjusting the universe. Um, and the reason we went against it is simply because in, in a couple of other paper I had with my advisor, um, we actually looked at a restriction of the universe to stocks that appear to be um, to have had trading costs um, a year ago. And we found that kind of the cost optimization that we ended up doing in this paper, which is this banding technique, um, actually outperformed limiting the universe. Um, now, we can try combining both and going kind of even further beyond, but we wanted to keep the cost optimization fairly simple so as to not to overfit the data, basically. So you mentioned... Uh, Let me just reintroduce okay. our guest real quick. We're here at the Jacobs Levy Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research. We're here with Mihail Velikov from Penn State University who published on transaction costs, how it impacts anomalies. Sorry. Hi. Um, so you mentioned there are two techniques that you can reduce uh, transaction costs. Right? One is evaluating. My understanding is that is based on the transaction costs that you try to transact on the lower spread, uh, bid ask spread score. And the second is try to limit turnover. Um, from these two, which one you think you know is more important? Like from from your results. From our results, it seems like both matter for different anomalies. Um, so some anomalies are really strong in the small caps. Um, other anomalies require very frequent trading. And um, for example, a, sh- a short-run reversal, which is a very popular anomaly in the academic literature, requires turning over roughly 90% of your portfolio every month. So for a short-run reversal, the banding technique that we, that we applied actually matters a lot more um, than, than valuating. That's that's really interesting. Uh, another uh, follow-up is that we asked a similar question to the previous guest. That since you you know so expert in all the uh, anomaly literature, and then now you have uh, you know more cap-weighted investment, more quantumental or factor, or how do you call it, a multi-factor, or versus you know still active, believing in the offer. What kind of investor are you as yourself? <laughs> um, I want to preface this that I'm I'm, I'm not. You know, trying to give any investment sure. advice, but nobody uh, wants to give advice <laughs> here. No, no, we don't want to give advice. Yes. Um, so, a, a lot of my investments are in, in, in passive index funds, and you know, being a student of my advisor, to the extent that there are any tilts, I try to have them to value momentum and cross profitability. Obviously, funds with quality tilts. Very good. The yeah. quality. No, you you know act, you know do what you what we preach, right? Like based on yep, yep. based on the evidence, then you know you make your um, pick of the of the investment. Um, I do for, want to follow up. Uh, um, one, one more thing is that there's um, the 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 result seems like a, there's the post publication and uh, you know the anomaly uh, got halved by mm-hmm. post publication. Mm-hmm. And then people say it's you know two reasons. One is because it was spurious to start with. The second thing is because of information. From your point of view, which one do you think is 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 more likely cause? 
So I think both the original paper that looked at post-publication on a large scale uh, by, by David McLean and Jeff Pontiff, they, they tried to separate it by arguing that the period between which a paper came out in the public, being posted on, on, on a website of the author or presented at a conference, and the period of publication is kind of a lower bound on the data mining. And they tried to attribute it about 35% due to, due, to, due, to, due to arbitraging away and about 15% due to, due to data mining. Um, but it's, it, it's tough to separate the two. My co-author has some interesting work trying to model that in a much more sophisticated way and, and, and get out a number, and he comes at about 15% um, okay. for data mining. Any places, things that you're working on now, where can people stay in touch with all that you're working on? So all of my papers are on, 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 on SSRN and, and my, on my personal webpage, um, and I'm, I continue in the spirit of, of the paper today, working on kind of the impact on market frictions and transaction costs on um, trading strategies. And it seems like one of the things that you guys are going to do is try to make a lot of your data available. Like the, some of this trading cost ad is not that available, yep. and you, you guys are going to work on a paper to make it all available. Yep. Oh, yeah. Very good. We're going to talk with Mihail Velikov, a professor at Penn State University. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Please note, I'm registered representative for Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates.